Welcome to season three of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, a podcast about the Bay Area, technology, and culture. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekis-Wolf. So I've been thinking a lot about Seattle these days. Seattle's a great, great place. In fact, it's the uh, it's where one of our second time podcast guests is from. This is kind of a new thing for us, though. We're coming back to people that have been on the show in the past, and we're having new and different kinds of conversations with them. We had Kate Clark uh, a few months back to uh, to try Phil's coffee for the first time, and did a joint interview with her and Jacob Jabber, the CEO of Phil's, after a uh, uh, an interesting Twitter thread ensued where Kate criticized Phil's. And I think that um, as much as we would have loved to have turned Kate on to Phil's as coffee that's better than her hometown Starbucks, we didn't quite get there, but we liked her so much that we wanted to spend more time with her. And Sunil, you got to do that pretty recently. She's uh, she's really a terrific uh, person and a tech reporter here in the Bay Area. So for our listeners, Kate Clark was a senior tech reporter for TechCrunch, uh, where she covered startups and venture capital. And she recently switched uh, jobs to The Information, which is a well-reputed technology public publication here in the Bay Area, where she is also covering venture capital. This is a pretty cool interview, Sunil. Um, I was excited to listen to it, and I'm sure everybody else is going to enjoy it just as much as I did. Really, really good. Uh, and we talk about some of her reporting around Lambda School, which is uh, an interesting company doing things uh, in the education space here in the Bay. Enjoy. Uh, very excited to have you, uh, back again, Kate, you are now a two-time guest on This Is Your Life in Silicon mm-hmm. Valley. I am. Thanks for having me back. Now, I remember your first visit to our, uh, to our podcast was, what was, what was the reason for that again? I had tweeted something negative about Phil's coffee and a debate erupted on Twitter around whether Phil's was better than Starbucks, I think. So you had me on to talk to, I think it's Jacob Jaber, Jacob Jabber of Phil's Coffee, the CEO. And have you changed your mind about Phil's since your last visit? I haven't had Phil's Coffee since I came on this podcast and tried it. I probably had Starbucks like 25 times in that time frame. I am quite disappointed to hear that, but that's okay. I can't, I mean, again, I'm not saying Starbucks is the best coffee. I'm just saying it's it's sort of a habit and Phil's just hasn't really done it for me just yet okay well some other things have changed since you last visited us Mm -hmm. you you switched jobs I did yeah I'm three weeks in now in a new job Um, I joined the information which is a subscription-based publication that covers tech and business what's your response to a boomer who says oh those millennials switching jobs left and right my dad was quite concerned that I was switching jobs. My third job since I graduated college, but um, I mean, when you ha- when a better opportunity comes your way, you should accept it, right? Are you saying it's a better opportunity for me personally? It's definitely a better opportunity because I think I get more time to dive into, um, you know, important issues in, in tech and venture capital and startups, uh, and I, I have the ability to sort of um, take a little bit more time on each piece that I write. Um, no, and, and you came out, you know, right out of the gate with a, with a pretty strong piece. So let's just get right into it. Yeah. Can you explain to our listeners who may not be as familiar with uh, what ISAs are, what they are, and what Lambda School is? 
Yeah, so maybe I'll start with Lambda School. Lambda School is um, something, it's a startup that sort of brands itself as a college substitute. And, um, you know, probably anyone listening's heard of coding academies. It's sort of these programs where you enroll for six months, maybe two years, and you take courses to learn how to be a software engineer, usually. There are other, you know, skills you can learn, like Lambda School, which is a leading coding academy that is based in San Francisco and a graduate of Y Combinator, um, raised a bunch of money in the past. Uh, you can learn to be an engineer there. You can learn UX design and they have a couple of other um, pathways for people to learn things and to get jobs that ideally are paying you a lot more than what you would enrolled in Lambda School making, which a lot of people obviously don't have jobs when they enroll. And how do they make money? So income share agreements, which you mentioned, ISAs, um, they actually have students sign these agreements and they will get a future portion of that student's income. So once a student is making $50,000 as an engineer, at least $50,000, Lambda School will get, um, I think it's 17% of their monthly salary. That sounds like a lot. I mean, is that? Yeah. I've I've heard about these models before. I mean, like, what's just your overall perspective on on this type of model for any profession? Yeah, so the income share agreement model is growing in popularity. Um, there are other universities, accredited universities, that are experimenting with it because the student loan crisis is massive. So I, I think you know there is absolutely nothing wrong with experimenting with these new models of financing education. I think actually it's a it's a great thing. Um, you know, it's just, it's it's new. And so, well, it's it's new in the sense that uh, for-profit schools are dabbling with it in a way that hasn't really been um, a thing. So, you know, with new things like this, there's always going to be these trial periods where they figure out what's appropriate. Um, you know, taking 17% of a person's monthly salary when they're making 50 grand is actually quite a lot of money, especially because it's pre-tax dollars that they're um, Yeah, it, it, seem, it seems like a lot. And I mean, is this really the way to eliminate the student debt problem. I mean, I'm just curious to hear your perspective yeah. on that. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't know. I think you know, obviously I don't have the answers to that, but I think startups that are dabbling with education, technology, or ed tech, as people like to call it, I mean, it seems like a great thing. Uh, you know, we have a lot of venture capital dollars that go into like all these consumer technology businesses that are, you know, they don't, they're not particularly meaningful, whatever that might uh, mean to a any individual person, but EdTech kind of has this, uh, is a bit more meaningful and um, there's more impact that can be made, I think. So I like to see startups there. Um, the thing about Lambda School, which I wrote about in the story, is that a lot of students that are in it actually feel like it's not high quality. And so they're really upset with the fact that they sign these income share agreements. Um, some of them even feel like they don't totally understand what those agreements are until they've kind of are already in the program. And then they're like, well, I don't think that I'm learning anything and I have to give you a percent of my salary for you know a few years. Yeah, this seems like a monumental shift in just how you think about the the model, and it it really is contingent upon the quality of job that you receive on the other end, and yeah. to some extent, the quality of education. One thing I often wonder about is, you know, are these schools building skills that are usable not just for a near term gain in income, but for the for the long run? And I don't know if any of your if you've developed a perspective on that. Yeah, I think the one question I, I would like answered, too, is, um, you know, I'd like to talk to a bunch of uh, managers of people who are working with uh, fellow Lambda School students and get their take on how well they're 
how, how good, I guess, of coders they are. Because, um, you know, I, I didn't, I don't know the answer to that. And I think um, that might be really telling of, of actually how effective these these coding schools are. And it's not just Lambda School. Um, there are several of these. There's Holperton School, which is a very similar, except that it's in-person um, and not remote, which Lambda School is fully remote, um, which, you know, some people think fully remote education doesn't work too. So there's a lot of factors at play here. One thing, and it's hard to talk about Lambda without talking about its CEO, yeah. Austin. And um, he is, you know, a pretty uh, vocal member of the tech community yeah. um, on Twitter and, and elsewhere. We actually had him uh, booked for the show, but he had to, he had to reschedule. Um, this was a, a few months ago. Um, tell us about Austin. Like, what is he like? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know him personally. I, I spoke to him for the story, but Austin Allred, um, I would say in a lot of ways, he's kind of a quintessential Silicon Valley idealistic CEO like he's very good at selling his vision and that's really important if you are venture backed I think because one way to get really good investors on board with a company when it's really nothing is to have a really grand vision and to be able to sell it effectively so he can do that and if you look up you know um, interviews he's done you'll see that he's uh, really good at that um, so I think you know he's really sold a lot of people on this and he has a lot of fans which is really interesting to me and he was a really interesting uh, sort of character um to me because he has such a following though you know his business is not particularly large yet i mean they're valued at like 150 million they have ambitions of i think higher valuation um according to some investors but i mean in the grand scheme of things this is a very small business and i they probably have um i mean they are they're not profitable of course and you know they have probably little to show in terms of um money really coming in so i'm it's fascinating to see such a audience for someone like that. And I think it really has to do with the fact that he's learned or he's just naturally um, gifted at selling his vision and, and kind of like attracting people to him. And it's, yeah, it's interesting. I to almost see. view that as like a credit to him in a way. I mean, yeah. there's this, uh, um, you know, no such thing as bad publicity thing. Mm -hmm. And there was, of course, like a big Twitter debate that erupted, I think, several weeks ago. I remember this. It was like on Christmas Day around how much Christmas Day. how much should you... It was funny because it was on Christmas Day and everybody was debating or, uh, you know, whether you should work, you know, X number of hours a week if that's correlated to success. Of course, my view on that is depends on the job. <laughs> right. But, uh, um, uh, but what did you did you follow that whole thing? And what was that all about? Oh, was it, wait, was the debate over how many hours you should work? Yeah, yeah, this was the, uh, I think it was DHH and yeah. Austin, <laughs> and there was this, like, big back and forth around. So what was Austin's take? I didn't see it. Uh, it was, it was, you was know. he, was he, uh, so one of them was pro, like, 80-hour work weeks, and one was con? Yeah, yeah, okay, essentially. Yeah. I think I heard about this. I mean, I didn't see it, which I'm glad. I was not spending my Christmas uh, engaging in Twitter debates like that, but, um, I mean, that's just representative of what's happening on online all the time in, in Silicon Valley or, you know, whatever Silicon Valley means nowadays. People are constantly debating things like this. But I think if you can be somebody who's constantly in these debates and having all these hot takes, you do get a big following. So it, like you said, it's, I mean, it can be a really effective way of branding. And a lot of the people I spoke to, whether that was in ed, ed tech or not, um, they said that they were impressed with, Mark, uh, with Austin's ability to market his company. I think that he has a really... Um, He's really strong at that specifically. Um, and that's been important for them, I think, because they're sort of the go-to coding school, um, at least in my circles. Yeah, no, they, they, they've developed a good brand. I have a yeah. few friends who've invested. And even Adam Mosseri, the CEO of Instagram, who we had on the podcast, came on here 
and said that, you know, we asked him what startups is he excited about? And Lambda was the only one he mentioned. Really? Huh? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think because it's an educational, it's in the educational sector, people do feel like it can make a big impact and people want that. I mean, you hear it all the time, how now employees of companies like Facebook want to leave because they want to work somewhere where they feel like it's mission driven and Lambda School, it is mission driven, right? I mean, at least, you know, on the outside, it seems like it is. So I can see why people are excited about it. So speaking of like kind of being extreme and getting marketing and kind of, you know, this just seems to be a recurring theme in our entire society right now. And one thing where, one place where we see it more, or maybe, maybe I'm perceiving this wrong, correct me, but it's just in the relationship between technology companies and the press that covers Mm -hmm. technology companies. Are, does the press hate tech companies? (laughs) Can you just explain? No, I mean, it's such a misconception. I, I remember once I was on a panel with Erin Griffith, who's a reporter at the New York Times, and somebody asked something like that. And she was like, I love startups. Like, I love innovation. I think all the people, all the tech reporters that I know um, are extremely excited about technology and they're interested in it. And like, I'm interested in, in venture capital and things that a lot of people don't, you know, pay attention to. So, no, I mean, certainly I don't know any reporters that are like, I hate tech companies absolutely not but i mean i think our jobs are to sort of bring some transparency to them and the thing is startups and larger technology companies are very happy to uh publish or talk about positive things but they're not going to talk about negative things so that's why you might see outsized coverage of negative you know seemingly negative news and i think that's why journalists are sort of accused of hating tech companies because they have to bring negative things to light you know, I, I share a similar take. So, I mean, I think just my opinion on this, and I don't know if it's, you know, well-informed from your perspective or not, but I, I think that the press probably feels like they missed the opportunity to hold in the early days companies like Facebook and Uber accountable, and then it ended up just ballooning into bad problems. And now the pendulum has swung on the other side. What's your take yeah, on that? Yeah, I mean, there could be some truth to that. I mean, I don't think, I haven't been a reporter long enough to, know, to really have enough context or historical context, but... I do think that people are seeing, or journalists have seen how Facebook played out. And they're, now when we look at companies that are like Lambda School, $150 million valuation, 100 employees, not that big, we're thinking about in two years when it's suddenly a $5 billion company, and then in seven years when it's Facebook. Like So now I think we are thinking um, about the startup and company life cycle, and, and we know what a company can become. And so maybe there's some of that, but I yeah, I don't, I don't really know. What... Um, yeah. Like, what is the mindset that you're in when you write a story like the like the Lambda School story or really any story? And so you kind of gave us a little bit of insight there. But what are are there any common questions that you're thinking about asking, like sort of any company across the board? And I mean, a little deeper than, oh, yeah, what's the value of this company? How fast is it growing? Like, what are just the questions that go through your head as a reporter? Well, for me, I think because I'm a venture capital reporter and I'm so focused on money, I, I usually, it's like, take a step back and I want, and ask the company, well, what are they trying to do? Like if with Lambda School, I thought that they were trying to raise money. You know, he said they, they actually turned down money and they, they don't want to raise additional capital unless they have to. So we'll see how that plays out. But, um, you know, I wanted to know from Austin, like, what are you, what do you want to do with it? What's next? Because like they have had said, they've said various things in the past, like, they wanted to launch a cybersecurity and nursing program, which is kind of far-fetched, but, you know, could happen if they had $100 billion at their disposal. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just um, finding out what, what they're trying to do uh, and getting past the 
the very press appropriate jargon that they might try to use or, you know, whatever they've been sort of like versed on from their It sounds team. like you're essentially being a bullshit filter. Yeah. I mean, you are, right? You're trying. And it's hard because sometimes you get like 45, and this is not about Lambda School, but sometimes you get like 45 minutes of just complete bullshit and you're like left with nothing. And you're like, well, how do I, then you just have to move on to somebody else. You know, one of the things that um, I've struggled with in this podcast, and um, we've had a few CEOs on, a few VCs on, and um, they've been great. We've been we've been fortunate uh, for these guys. But when you talk to people for you know a few, uh, there's a hard, there's this problem with being transparent, um, yeah. particularly with business CEOs <clears throat> and VCs. They are some of the most press trained people you'll they ever are. encounter. And how do you how do you crack that? Like, what's the what, what, how do you get a layer deeper and get information that's useful? I mean, I'm, I'm still learning. I think one strategy is to continue asking the same question in different different words. Um, you know, I'm not, if you're if you're interviewing somebody on tape and you want it to be interesting, um, that's harder because then you're, you can't just keep asking them something. But if you're on a phone call with somebody and you're trying to write a story, you could just keep sort of like jabbing them until they give you something. But, you know, it's true. PR, or VCs are very well, um, they are really well press trained and they are not incentivized to tell you things because why would they be? So it's, I think it's particularly challenging because if you're a reporter in like politics or in a lot of these other local news, um, you know, you're talking to normal people, a uh, man on the street, a woman on the street. But um, when you're sort of a venture capital reporter, you're talking to venture capitalists constantly every day and they, they don't really want to tell you things. So it's tough. Um, how do you approach a situation where, and have, actually maybe I'll, I'll ask, have you ever encountered a situation where you suspected maybe you got a tip from a VC to, you know, hurt another company's round or any situation like that. Have there been cases like that? Absolutely. Yes. All the time. That is extremely common. Yes. Extremely common. Everybody is motivated by different things. You have to, so whenever you get a tip from somebody in the industry like that, um, you just have to, you just have to report it fully because you just have no idea where it could be coming from. And it doesn't mean it's not true, but that definitely happens. Wow. That's that's like very Machiavellian. And so um, do they, you know, like, do you, I mean, do you just oftentimes run into a situation where they're trying to like use you as a tool to push their propaganda? Yeah. I mean, I, so I've only been at the information a very short time, so I, I don't know if it will change because the, the nature of the publications are so different, but being at TechCrunch, um, I definitely felt people try to use me as a pawn for various things. It's just something you have to learn your way around. Um, and I found like moving to San Francisco from Seattle, the culture is very like transactional and you just kind of have to get used to it. Has anyone ever attempted to intimidate you into not publishing something? Um, no, I mean, people just get angry, but I I don't know if it's, I I don't, I don't see that as intimidation because it's just kind of like an emotional reaction. Um, I feel like intimidation is more like calmly being like, but I'll, you know, so no, I haven't really had that luckily. Luckily, yeah, yeah, but you know, you're you're early in your reporting career. Yeah, yeah. who knows what might happen. <laughs> um, what's the most surprising thing um, that you've learned so far being a tech reporter uh, in San Francisco? Um, pro- well, maybe just in in my career as a tech reporter, just in general, uh, that so few companies are profitable and they all burn through so much money. Um, I think people who don't work in tech like just assume all of these companies, whether it's like DoorDash or Uber or like. Pinterest, all these like big, big former tech startups. Um, they just assume they're these money making machines, but they're just, they're pretty much the opposite. Um, I think that was a really interesting thing for me to learn. And, you know, like it's hard to talk about several of those companies without talking about 
um, SoftBank, which is one of the mm-hmm. most more prominent investors um, now in, in, in tech. And I don't think I've seen this in the past 10 years where they've almost reached the status where you know receiving money from them has turned into almost like a negative branding event. Isn't that crazy? What um, What's going on there? Like, what's your what's your analysis of SoftBank um, and these massive rounds and you know their their brand? Yeah, it's only been a few years since the Vision Fund became a thing, and I don't know. In, in a, such a short time, like you just mentioned, it's gone from being this like wow, SoftBank money in this company, SoftBank money in that company, to being like those companies kind of being ashamed. I think we actually just recently reported, I think last week, this company called GoPuff, um, SoftBank invested $750 million in them and it it never was announced by anyone. And who knows why, but it could be because that company didn't want the negative press associated with it. It's almost like they're doomed if they get money there. But um, I think we're seeing Soft, I mean, SoftBank is now, I feel like trying to strategize and sort of figuring out how they can um, reverse some of the damage they've done because they did make a number of, investments which i think everyone sort of agrees were not the smartest and didn't really have the network effects that usually make for really um successful investments do you think that ultimately like just playing this out 10 years from now and i know that you know like let's say we record this again in 10 years does the softbank vision fund return positively for investors um the first for the first fund yeah. for the first fund uh what about you know like what 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 investments do you think that uh, yeah maybe asking a different way do are there any soft bank investments you look at and think wow this is a good one that's a good question i feel like there i mean there is more attention paid to some of the ones where you're like why did they do that like wag or brandless which were very new companies and they gave them just tons of capital but um i think i mean i've i've think there's some latin american companies in their portfolio that seem to be doing okay i mean i i don't know off the top of my head whether that's even right but i think they're in like rappy which is a i think on demand delivery i could be wrong so don't yeah yeah no don't don't, don't worry check you me. you uh yeah yeah uh we don't we don't fact check here um like uh i i heard that line from michael rapaport from uh from his podcast he's a great podcaster um interesting on on you know how I, I think there was more reporting done today by your old colleague Al, Alex yeah. Wilhelm at, at TechCrunch yeah. about this very subject, and just kind of looking at there was a possible Uber DoorDash. Yeah, uh, yeah. Actually, that was I think the the Financial Times reported it, um, and then he probably yeah. But it, yeah, so they reported that six months ago there was talks between DoorDash and Uber of a merger. The thing about those kind of deals is like that those are happening all the time so you you never i mean i don't i don't know how much reporting they did but you never know how far those talks went you never know if it was like one drink at a bar or was it like the contract was written um and i don't i don't actually know what the details of that story were but um people were definitely talking about it today and i had a few conversations about it and um it's one of those things where like most reporters in the space were like oh yeah like i i'd heard about that i didn't dig into it but i heard of it so it's certainly something people had been talking about but interesting to see the story come out and if that's if that rumor is flying around, I kind of wor- I mean, it's got to be destabilizing for DoorDash employees. But I think about a company like Postmates, and I think, yeah, how do they survive? And like, so, you know, that that particular space, so much capital has gone into it. I know it's not a space that you um, maybe maybe you've covered before. Yeah, yeah, some. Um, what's going to happen there? It's yeah. I, I'm glad you brought up Postmates because I feel like so Postmates was filed to go public was going to go public in like November, just October. I don't know. It's been a couple months and then they delayed their IPO. And then now it's crickets. 
so what's going on? Um, there were there were rumors that DoorDash was going to acquire Postmates. So, you know, another set of like rumors of the same sort of category. I even heard that one. Yeah. And I, I don't know what happened. I interviewed the CEO of Postmates at TechCrunch Disrupt and I asked him about it and he said, you know, it's not true or whatever. I something along those lines. Um, and I'm really wondering what they're going to do because I think they're in a bad spot. Uh, 2019 IPOs were not great for these consumer tech companies, um, as we all know. Postmates is, you know, it's not a proven business model. It's it's not any of the good enterprise tech that all the that all the Wall Street people want. I don't know. I think I I would I am very curious to see what they'll do, and I'm sure they're concerned about what's next. You know, if I'm a if I'm a listener outside of Silicon Valley, anyway, we have a lot of those. Um, what companies should I be thinking about right now that are going to affect my life? You know, like my day to day life. What are there any that you that stand out to you that, whoa, holy shit, these are going to be, these are going to be big. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of activity at fintech and I think it, it seems to me based off my friends who aren't in tech that a lot of companies in that space seem to kind of cross over. And I think I'm thinking of like Robinhood as an example. That's a company that I have a lot of friends who are familiar with. Um, and I am also because it's this very valuable unicorn, whatever. So I think we'll see more growth there. There's companies like Stash and Chime, and there's a bunch of these sort of like investment apps that I think are getting a lot. Um, they're making a lot of progress. They're growing quickly. So I'm guessing those are ones will probably be there. And then also, I think um, one space I'm interested in exploring, but I know nothing about is clean tech or like climate tech or whatever you want to call it, things that are good for the environment. Um, I've noticed some buzz around that space in the sort of San Francisco VC community. So I'm I'm thinking maybe that we'll see, mm, I don't know if we'll see more investment, but we might see more talk and then that might lead to more investment. So then those could obviously be really impactful for everyone in the entire world. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, definitely uh, feels like, I mean, I've, I've heard of more companies working on climate tech stuff, yeah, stuff as well. Um, you know, I guess, what are some things that you would share for people who are outside of uh, of the Valley that are common, I don't know, myths that, you know, and stereotypes that you see in like pop culture that are just not true or that you would confirm are true? The thing is, like, they're so true. I feel like the stereotypes are so true about Silicon Valley. Like, that's why I mentioned to you before we recorded that book, Uncanny Valley. She talks about, which I recommend, she talks about so many of these things that we kind of see as stereotypes, but like she she lived in the startup world and she worked at a startup and they're all true. And I think, you know, a lot of, I think about um, the fact that it's still very male dominated is true. The fact that people wear Patagonia vests all the time, it's true. Like a lot of these things and the fact that people speak in jargon and that they um, hyper network and like send GCAL invites to their friends for like hanging out. Like all these things are very true. Um, you know, it, it, uh, much of it is true. I, I, I completely agree. You know, you mentioned the Uncanny Uncanny Valley. Yeah. Are there any other, you know, um, books that you're reading right now that you'd recommend uh, to people to demystify this place or just about this place in general or authors uh, that you follow? That's a good question. Um, yeah, so I just read Uncanny Valley. That was really good. Um, just generally books about that. I think Reset by Ellen Powell is really great. That one came out like 2018, I think. But um, that's a really excellent book. Um, and then all the ones I'm thinking of are like the ones about how it's... Uh, not diverse at all, but Brotopia is also really good. Um, I'm trying to think about, like, I don't, I know a lot of people read, like, Peter Thiel's book and all these, and, like, what's the LinkedIn founder? Uh, Reed Hoffman. Yeah, like, I mean, I don't read the books that are, like, how to scale. I think it's more interesting to read about the culture. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't like reading um, 
um, business books in general, I prefer like the HBR articles. It just gives me like a quick, quick summary. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of medium posts for, for any of the, if you're looking for tips on how to grow your business, but like, if you're looking for perspective into what it's like to live here, I mean, I'm obviously drawn to the like female perspectives and there's a lot of great books like that. Um, but I'm, I mean, but I'm sure there's plenty from the male perspective as well, if that's what you want. Who, who do you, you know, who are your role models in, in, in tech reporting or journalism in general? I mean, there are so many great reporters at The Information, like Amir and um, Tom Doten and like just Corey, all the people I work with, they're so impressive. Um, and then beyond, like I think, like I think Mike Isaac, who I mentioned and Aaron at the New York Times are really great. I mean, you know, people who work at the New York Times, of course, very admirable position to be in. Um, they obviously worked their way there. I think like it's, it's a space with a ton of really great reporters and there's so many new publications cropping up too. Like it's... It's crazy how many jobs there are and how much growth there's been in like tech reporting. So I'm excited that that's where I landed because it seems like it's a good good place to be. You uh, you cover venture capital, but <clears throat> if you were a venture capitalist, um, I won't put you on the spot and make you name a specific company. Uh, but is there is there a space that you would invest in heavily right now? Uh, well, if I was thinking about purely returns, I would only invest in enterprise tech. I would invest in like SaaS. And I, I would invest in like dev sumer and productivity, even though I, the, I'm not passionate about it at all. But if I was only thinking about money, if I was thinking about like fun, I would invest in consumer tech and I would invest in things that normal people on the street interact with because that seems a lot more exciting. But I don't know if there's as much money there. And are there any consumer companies that you're, I mean, we mentioned the ones that seem like they're, they're not doing so well, um, but are there any that you're kind of like, okay, I mean, so Robinhood, you mentioned that. Um, but are there any others where you're like, okay, consumers should, should really be aware of this? I don't know. I don't, I feel like a lot of the ones right now are kind of going through a lot of growing pains where it's like these delivery apps or they, they just, they, they were so subsidized by these venture capital dollars. And now like, you know, they're getting to the point where they, where they need to show some sort of profit and they can't. So I, I can't even think of one off the top of my head. Can you think of a good one? Consumer apps that I'm excited about or just consumer tech that I'm excited about. Um, yeah, you know, I just haven't felt that feeling in a while. Yeah. It, isn't, that, isn't that strange? Like there isn't something that I open up and I think, wow, this is this is magical and it, it feels yeah. great. It all felt so new when mobile was out and like all, all, all this great stuff. Now it just feels like everything is... Uh, you know, there's like a lot of D2C brands and stuff like that. There are but... a lot of D2C brands. There, there are definitely <clears throat> too many D2C brands. I think there's a lot of cool stuff going on at like social social media kind of. Um, there's a reporter at The Information who covers that really closely. And he's got some really interesting pieces about it. Like the TikTok era. There, you know, there was just that new TikTok, TikTok app bite that launched and everyone was talking about it. So, you know, there's that stuff is fun. And that's why I say I would, I would look be interested in it because it's fun. You know, it's not like enterprise SaaS, which is inherently boring um but you know it is i were i've worked for a couple of those but yeah <laughs> I, I i completely agree um couple couple final questions for you kate mm -hmm. um you know you've you've tweeted about this before but are there too many podcasts right now yeah well, i mean there's not too many podcasts because if there are people listening then i think it's it's great um there are just so many i was just thinking about this though like it's it's very fun to podcast, but even if you don't have an audience, I think that's why so many people do it. But um, yeah, there, there's, there seems we're in a podcast bubble, but I think there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, um, there are there are a lot of podcasts out there. There are a lot of people who shouldn't be podcasting. I won't name names. <laughs> maybe maybe they would say that I shouldn't be podcasting, but here I am sitting in a room with you. Um, 
uh, the last question I had was more related to just, it, there just seems to be rumblings and early signs that companies are laying off more mm -hmm. and we're just, you know, w whether it's in the on-demand space, et cetera, what's going to happen? Like, are we, are we headed for a downturn or is this just kind of a false alarm? I'm always the one asking people that. Um, I, well, I was just looking at some data that showed that actually like layoffs have been steady. Um, so maybe it feels like there are more, but perhaps there actually aren't. Um, I think this entire, the whole venture capital startup, what a tech world is very cyclical. So naturally we will, I have no idea when, I mean, smart people say maybe this year and some other smart people say maybe in three years. So it will come, but I, I don't think it's imminent. It just feels like, oh my gosh. I mean, you know, there's just so much geopolitical uncertainty. I mean, we were yeah. almost at, yep. I, mean, I can't believe that, um, you know, the year just started a few weeks ago and we almost went to war in the Middle East. Now there's an outbreak. Yeah, it's... There's a potential pandemic. Kobe mm -hmm. Bryant died. It's um, been a... Yeah, I think just pretty much immediately. I mean, the crash in Iran, like, first day of the year. Like, it's just been... It's, yeah, certainly not going to be any... Um, and now we're in election year. Like, this is going to be uh, just as an eventful year as 2019 was, if not more. You just switched jobs, but I have to ask you, is this what you want to do for the rest of your life? Uh, I, <laughs> that's a good question. I, th I hope so. Yes. I mean, I, I do want to, I think it's, it's a hard career to switch out of. I think like once you're a reporter, you just, ha you develop these skill sets and this sort of way of thinking about the world. And it'd be really hard for me to turn that off and stop doing that. Well, I mean, we, we all know a few journalists who've switched uh, to the, to the other side and, and gone to the VC side. If you get a gigantic offer from Benchmark and Sequoia or all these other firms, you're not gonna you're not gonna you're not gonna switch teams to be their next general partner, <laughs> to be their youngest ever general partner. Uh, no, I um, no that 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 feels like such a conflict of interest to do that. I, I mean, yes, it does happen, and I nothing against it. I totally understand that people um, some people are passionate about technology, and then some people are more passionate about journalism. And I'm definitely someone who is more passionate about journalism. Like I never had any ambitions of being a tech reporter. It's just kind of like where my career took me. So um, I guess I'm trying to say is my interest in journalism is, comes first um, and then my interest in tech comes second. Uh, any uh, shout outs to your former colleagues at, uh, at TechCrunch? Uh, any, uh, mm -hmm. any, any last uh, uh, sayings for them? Yeah, I mean, I miss working with Megan, Megan Rose Dickey. She was like my best friend at TechCrunch and I miss seeing her on an everyday basis. And Alex, I mean, Alex Wilhelm and I only overlapped by like a week because he had been at Crunchbase. He came back to TechCrunch and then I quit. <laughs> so we only had a short overlap. So I miss, um, but I miss doing the podcast because we had our equity podcast together and I definitely miss that. Um, are we going to see another Kate Clark podcast? It's it's very possible. I, I'm thinking about it. I don't know, you know, there's a lot of factors at play, but I'm definitely thinking about like what would be an interesting podcast. I don't want to just do another like Kate interviews VCs. So I got to think about it for a while. Um, I, I tried to convince Kate to do a podcast with me on more than one occasion. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know. One day. When, one, I, when one, we both have more free time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we're retired. Um, well, I mean, let's let's find, like, you're supposed to find out which, you know, which company that we need to invest in to make that, that happen. I mean, you get all this insider hmm. info, right? I mean, like, come on, use some of these VC tips and... And help us uh, make a profit from it. <laughs> Definitely. That is a conflict of interest as well. But, you know. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> not for me. Um, okay. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us for, for a second me. time. Uh, and uh, we're excited to follow your your career and your reporting at The Information. What's your Twitter Twitter handle again? Kate Clark tweets. Yep. Exactly. All right. I got it. Okay. <laughs> it's an easy one to remember. Thank you. Thanks.
I got to say that prior to listening to the two of you, I really believed that like, as much as I wanted a journalist to be pure in their focus, that they had some sort of a narrative that they were just trying to fill in the blanks for. And I think you both helped dispel that for me. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's a really interesting environment out there with a lot of mistrust for companies and their various roles in, you know, destroying various aspects of democracy. We cover that in, in numerous other episodes of the pod. You should probably listen to those. Uh, but it was really, really interesting hearing how uh, Kate approaches technology reporting. I really like this format. I mean, I recognize that wasn't all three of us in the conversation, but I really enjoyed it. And for you, dear listener, if you liked this episode, we would love to hear feedback from you because we may be able to do many more podcasts if the two of us go off and do interviews with important people from the Bay Area 101 and then come back together and have a chance to talk about it. And uh, we got feedback recently that Yasha needs to uh, stop trailing off in sentences. And so I just want you to know that that feedback is heard. It's heard. What kind of feedback did you get, Sunil? That I'm not loud enough sometimes. Which is shocking to me because I feel like you're the loudest person that I know. I, I know. And so it, it, it hurt to, uh, to hear that feedback. But shout out to uh, Lakshmi who gave that feedback. Lakshmi, thank you. I'm not going to trail anymore. Sunil is going to be louder. But most importantly, if you loved listening to this podcast as much as I love giving Sunil feedback, Please rate it five stars. Leave us a comment. It helps more people find the podcast. Thank you.